today we, get a, we begin a brand new series entitled Alone. Over the course of these next five weeks, we're going to be discussing five foundational truths of the Christian faith. These five foundational truths are often referred to as the five solas. The word sola is a Latin word that means only or alone. It is used in five phrases that uh, best depict the, the, the basic theological principles of the Christian faith. Those five phrases are sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fida, solos Christos, and then the last one is soli deo gloria. In English, that would be scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. It was some 500 years ago that these five convictions drove the reformers to act boldly in order to restore the church to a true biblical foundation. This morning we're going to begin with the first sola, sola scriptura, or scripture alone. In the 16th century, the reformers faced off against Rome because the Roman Catholic Church had elevated tradition and the teaching authority of the Roman church to a level of scripture, and in some places, even above the level of scripture. The doctrine of sola scriptura affirms that scripture is to be understood as the sole source of divine revelation. Scripture is the only inspired word of God. So scripture is the inerrant, sufficient, and final authority for our faith and practice. A foundational truth is just as important today as it was for the reformers in the 16th century. Since the 16th century, Protestantism and its view of the Bible has uh, survived and endured several different types of attacks. We've gone through a period of enlightenment, liberalism, and then most recently, postmodernism. Each of these movements have elevated other voices to the level of Scripture and in some instances above Scripture. Today, many people reject that the Bible is God-breathed. They reject that the Bible is truthful in all that it declares. As we begin, I want to take a few moments to try to lay a, a foundation for before we begin to look at what Scripture says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want to begin by sharing with you uh, what the Southern Baptist Convention, what their view is on the Word of God. Uh, we are a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. We are a Southern Baptist church, and while there are some things that are happening within our convention that gives me great concern, uh, those are lessons for another day, there are plenty that have happened within the SBC that brings me great joy and, and confidence. And I particularly am impressed and, and love what the, the SBC has to say about the Word of God. And so on the screens, it says, in view of the Bible, it says that the Bible, the Holy Bible, was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. 
It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of, of divine revelation. Now with this in mind, I, I want to start off by, by warning you, or uh, urging you, maybe that's a better word, to exercise great discernment when, it, when you turn to secondary sources in order to try to help you understand our primary source, our final authority. There are many times, and it, and it should be so, where we will look towards other sources to give us a better understanding of what God's Word is trying to communicate to us. And while that practice is good and helpful, you need to be extremely careful as to where you turn to for those secondary sources. The sad reality is just because you purchase something at a Christian bookstore doesn't mean that it is worthy to be used in studying the Word of God. Let me give you a few examples this morning. Uh, first one comes from a, uh, an author by the name of Peter Enns. Uh, Peter Enns is a, a biblical scholar. He's a theologian. He's a, a writer of many books. Uh, among the books that he has written, are one is called Inerrancy, However Defined, does not describe what the Bible does. Another one that he has written is called The Bible Tells Me So. Defending Scripture has made us unable to read it. In his writing, he states that the Bible is not reliable or factual in its historical narrative. What the Bible says happened didn't happen. Furthermore, Many of its theological descriptions and ethical instructions are disturbing, wrong, contradictory, and at times even immoral and barbaric. Consequently, the Bible is not inerrant, clear, or sufficient, nor should we consider parts of it inspired at all. Why would I bring attention to Peter Enns? At one point, you could purchase this book at Lifeway Christian Resources. Thankfully, now it's not available through them, but many of his commentaries are, which I would pause and why would I want to read a commentary from an individual who doesn't have a proper view on the Holy Word of God? And so that's just one example. I'll give you another. His name is Kenton Sparks. Uh, Kenton Sparks is also an author. Uh, he's a professor of biblical studies. Uh, he wrote a book called Sacred Word, Broken Word. Biblical Authority and the Dark Side of Scripture. He also wrote the book God's Word in Human Words, an evangelical appropriation of critical biblical scholarship. In his writing, he says that the Bible is primarily a human book, and since it is written by humans, it naturally errs. Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. Paul didn't write many epistles bearing his name. The flood and the exodus never happened. Nineveh never repented. Gospel writers contradict each other. And, and prophecies of Christ's return is mistaken. He also says those errors are not only historical in nature, but theological and ethical. 
as the Bible espouses values that are sinister and evil. Therefore, the Bible, being fallen and broken, has a dark side. Nevertheless, Scripture is still God's word and authoritative in its message, since God accommodates himself to error, redeeming and sanctifying man's broken word. Now, 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 this one frustrates me so much. Not only is he just wrong, it frustrates me because this resource you can buy at Lifeway Christian Resources today. It's readily available. And so if you're asking me, if you're like, well, why am I picking on Lifeway? What's my issue with them? Well, may you know, or maybe you don't know, that Lifeway is part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Are you aware of that? Founded in 1891, for more than 100 years, Lifeway was referred to as the Sunday School Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. It wasn't until 1998 that it went through a change and then became renamed it or rebranded itself as Lifeway Christian Resources. On their website, their mission statement says this, Lifeway Christian Resources exists to honor God and serve churches by designing trustworthy experiences that fuel ministry. I read that statement. And then all you have to do is take a look at their inventory and, and the resources that they promote and push, and it becomes really clear that Lifeway sells books and resources that have more to do with the promotion of their profit than it does in their desire to instill biblical literacy. My desire is that Lifeway would experience some repentance and, and reshape itself, rebrand itself, and do the right thing and provide biblically accurate resources or the Southern Baptist Convention would pull the plug and stop funding something that provides such heretical resources to our world. The Word of God. How do we handle His Word? What is your view when it comes to the Scriptures? Now, thankfully, not theologians have lost their marbles there were and are still good solid uh, people out there to whom we can turn to Uh, there was a man by the name of carl henry carl henry was a prominent theologian in the mid to late 20th century he passed away in 2003 In, in in the mid 1970s he wrote a six volume set called god revelation and authority side note You can't find this in Lifeway. But in that writing, I want you to notice what he had to say. He said that the church um, throughout history has faced repeated attacks on the Bible from skeptics. But only in the 19th and 20th century has the, the truthfulness and trustworthiness of God's word been questioned, criticized, and abandoned within the body of Christ. Now, to the reformers, this would have been unthinkable. Yet this is the day in which we live. Not only do Bible critics influence our culture, they've also mounted our pulpits and they sit comfortably amongst the pews. If Carl Henry was right, and I believe that he was, then then there is legitimate cause for alarm within the church today. Therefore, 
one of the most significant needs of the 21st century is a call back to the Bible. A call back to the Bible that encourages a reverence for the Word of God, an acceptance to the Word of God, an adherence to God's Word because of its authoritative nature. I'd say it's probably safe to say that the most, if not all of you, have never heard the name Dr. William Evans. I'm not talking about Tony Evans. I'm talking about Dr. William Evans. Dr. William Evans was an unusually accomplished individual. In fact, among his accomplishments, uh, Dr. William, as he was affectionately referred to, had the entire Word of God committed to memory. He memorized the, the complete King James Version of the Scripture. In addition to that, He also had the New Testament and the uh, American Standard Version committed to memory. Uh, So Dr. William authored more than 50 books. Appropriately, he also authored the book, How to Memorize the Bible. He had a son by the name of Lewis. His son was a a well-known pastor in America who pastored a Presbyterian church in Hollywood. When Dr. William reached the age of retirement, he moved to Hollywood to be near his son. When his son would be away for a weekend or needed time off from preaching, uh, Dr. William would often fill the pulpit on behalf of his son. One unforgettable Sunday morning, Dr. William preached on the virgin birth of our Lord. His, His driving theme was either we believe that God's word is true and we believe and accept the the virgin birth of our Lord, or we don't believe that it's true, and therefore you reject his birth. Uh, You can't pick and choose, in other words. As he was preaching, he held up his Bible, and then he began to tear out pages that dealt with the, the narration of the birth. As the pages began to fall to the ground, he said, if we can't believe in the virgin birth, then let's tear it out of the Bible. Then to further drive home his point, he began to tear out the sections that dealt with the resurrection of our Lord. He tore out sections that dealt with the miracle narratives. He he, he tore out sections that, that dealt with anything that conveyed the supernatural And so the floor was literally filled with mutilated pages torn from his Bible. Finally, with immense drama, he held up the only portion that remained. And he says, and this is all that we have left, the Sermon of the Mount. And this has no authority for me if a divine Christ didn't preach it. After a few more words, he asked his listeners to bow their heads for the benediction. But before he could start to pray, a man of the congregation stood up and cried out, No, no, like we want more. And then several other people started to cry out, We want more. I wonder what that would feel like. (laughs) But, But anyway, in response to their crying out for more, he went on to preach for another 50 minutes that morning. And Dr. William was right. The point of his dramatic presentation was to remind everyone that we cannot pick and choose what we want to believe and follow from the Word of God. That was the issue uh, with Thomas Jefferson. Have you ever heard of the Jefferson Bible? 
Raise your hand if you've ever heard of that. Thomas Jefferson was a product of the Age of Enlightenment. He was a deist. He believed that there was a supreme, supernatural being who created the world, but that being, whatever it was, was not directly involved with his creation after it was created. Uh, Thomas Jefferson had some extreme views for his day, even for our day. In fact, opponents of his in the 1800 election uh, would often refer to him as the howling atheist. Jefferson was frustrated with, with the way that Jesus was presented in the Scripture. He had a great appreciation for his teachings. He just didn't agree with how he was portrayed. So, so he set out on a quest to create his own account. And so in 1820, he, he, he published a, a book, about 83, 84 pages, and it was called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. What he had done is he had painstakingly taken the effort to literally cut and paste the Word of God. He'd go through the Gospel accounts and he would cut out certain sections and then paste it on his own document to create this writings. And he, anything that had to deal with the, the miraculous birth of our Lord, he, he, he didn't include that. Anything that had to do with miracles, he didn't include, include it. Anything that had to do with Jesus' deity, he didn't include it. While he included the death of our Lord, he stops when, he, uh, when they put him in the tomb. So, so there's no inclusion of the resurrection, no inclusion of his ascension, no inclusion of the promise of his return. Empty. Empty in his approach to the word of God. What Thomas Jefferson tried to do was to pick and choose what he felt comfortable with, and what, what ultimately happens is when you begin to pick and choose what it is that you want to follow, what it is that want, what you want to believe, then you begin to set yourself above the authority of God who gave us his word. And you know that this word that we have readily access to in our lives is a most precious and sacred thing. It is special and it is distinct unlike any other book ever created. Think about it. After existing for centuries, it continues to be taught, bought, distributed, and loved more than any other book known unto man. Part of its true uniqueness lies in its unity. In fact, the unity of the Scripture speaks to its divine inspiration in and of itself. Because the Bible is not just one book. It is a collection of books. It is a library of books. It is 39 books that make up the Old Testament and 27 books that make up the, the New Testament. It is a, a collection of 66 books written over a time span of 15 centuries by more than 40 authors who, who were unique and, and different from each other. Some of the books were written by kings, King David and Solomon. Some of them written by farmers, uh, like Amos. Uh, some books were written by statesmen, like Daniel. Priests, like Ezekiel and Ezra. Prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Fishermen, Peter and John. Scholars, like, like Paul. 
I mean, with such a variety of authorship and over a long period of time, one might expect that the end result would be a collection of, of mixed ideas and contradictions. I mean, for instance, if you would take some of the, the famous writings uh, in history, if you take some of the writings from Plato, Aristotle, uh, Josephus, Dante, Shakespeare, if you would take some of their writings and, and place them in one library, one resource, you would end up with a series of disconnected ideas. There would be no unity. There would be a, a whole series of contradictions. No theme to unite them. No theme to hold it all together. Ah, but not with the Word of God. From, from Genesis all the way through Revelation, there is one theme that brings it all together, and that's God's plan of redemption. So if I had to pick one reference out of this entire collection that God has given to us, if I had to pick just one place to talk about the importance of the Word of God, and I do have to pick it, I'm standing here this morning, I better give you something, right? I'd pick the reference from 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, I've discovered that there are several ways in which scholars have uh, in, translated the beginning of verse number 16. I just read from uh, the New American Standard, and if you have that version or if you have the New Living Translation, it starts off with, all Scripture is inspired. For those of you that are looking at a King James Version, or a New King, New King James, yours says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The New International Version declares that all Scripture is God-breathed. I think perhaps the English Standard Version, or the ESV, has most beautifully captured the truth of this. The ESV says all Scripture is breathed out by God. So why is this significant? It's significant because God's Word was breathed out, not breathed in. God's Word came out from Him to us, not vice versa. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16 does not say that God breathed something divine into the writings of men after the fact that's not what Scripture says. No, that's what Kenton Sparks said in, in his book. That, that, that was his understanding. But that's not what God's Word has to say. It says that the very reason that the Scripture exists is because God himself breathed it out for us. So while the books of the Bible are written by man, their origin is directly from God. They are the result of divine inspiration. God is the author. Scripture comes directly from him. God did not just miraculously drop this book from heaven to give it to us. No, rather he chose ordinary people who lived over a long period of time to record and to write down exactly what he intended to communicate unto us. So there is, in a sense, a dual authorship to the word of God. 
Each biblical book has both a divine author and a human author. The divine author is in full control, guiding and directing everything so that his words are properly communicated unto us. So this belief that scripture was breathed out by God perfectly expresses the early views that were held by the church. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 1 says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. So the Scriptures are the Word of God that were given to us by the very breath of God. Therefore, Scriptures are our final authority for living. Scriptures are the final authority. Not tradition, not customs, not certain practices. Scriptures are our final authority. Not our feelings, not our preferences, not what culture dictates. It's the Word of God that is the final authority in our life. And Paul goes on to show its usefulness and its purpose. Back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Let's just work through these real quick. First of all, it says it's profitable for teaching. God wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt who He is, and God wants us to know who we are. God wants us to know the beginning, the meaning, and the end of all things. The Bible ultimately gives us principles and rules for life. The Bible gives us the doctrines and the foundations for our living. So so the, the Bible is profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof or rebuke. The scriptures reveal both the will of God and it reveals the consequences of being disobedient to the will of God. And so when we read the Bible... We're made to see who we are in in respect or in comparison to who God is. And that can and should be a very painful experience. Because we constantly give in to sin. We're constantly giving way to temptation. And so when the Word of God rebukes us for doing that, when, when, when we take that rebuke to heart through confession and repentance, then we can experience inner peace. Then we can continue to grow in Christ-like maturity. So the Word of God is profitable for, for training. It's profitable for, for reproof or rebuking us. It's profitable for correcting. It's not enough that we should be rebuked by the Word of God when we choose sin. But we also need to be corrected as to how we're supposed to live in light of God's word and in response to his will. So so the Bible corrects our wrong thinking. It trains and instructs us on, on how we're to live our lives. That's why the psalmist writes in Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I think, I love how J.I. Packer, how, how he addresses this truth. J.I. Packer, uh, just recently, this past, I believe it was in June, uh, passed away. But, but notice what he says. He says that Holy Scripture should be thought of as God preaching. 
God preaching to me uh, every time I read or hear any part of it. God the Father preaching God the Son in the power of God the Holy Spirit. Man. One more that Paul includes for us. It says that the Word of God is profitable for training. God wants us to know the right things to do. He wants us to know the right thoughts to think. He wants us to know the right words to say. The Bible reveals unto us exactly how we're supposed to live in this world. Titus chapter 2 tells us in verses 11 through 14, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul concludes this section by stating the the true purpose that underlines our desire to read and to study the Word of God. Verse 17 says, So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Adequate means to be complete. So that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. I love what what William Barclay has to say about this particular verse. I think what, his, what he has to say needs to pierce our hearts and it needs to be heeded by each and every one of us. He says in, in response to 2 Timothy 3.17, he says that the study of Scripture trains a man in righteousness until he is equipped for every good work. Here is the essential conclusion. The study of the Scriptures must never be selfish. It must never be simply for the good of a man's own soul. Any change, any conversion, which makes a man think of nothing but the fact that he has been saved is no true change and no true conversion. He must study the scriptures to make himself useful to God and useful to his fellow men. He must study not simply and solely to save his own soul, but that he may make himself such that God will use him to help to save the souls and comfort the lives of others. No man is saved unless he is on fire to save his fellow men. In other words, it's not just about you. When Dr. William stood among the torn pages of his Bible on that Sunday morning, his point was either all of Scripture is God-breathed or it's not. Either all of Scripture is useful or it isn't. Either the Word of God is sufficient to give us guidance and direction for how we're supposed to live or it's not. It either equips us or it doesn't. I love when when Moses declares in, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, it records what Moses had to say when he had finished writing the words of the law and he had given it to the people. And in Deuteronomy 32, verse number 45, it says, When Moses had finished speaking all these words to all of Israel, he said to them, 
Take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law, for it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. The Word of God is life. When Jesus began His ministry, the Spirit of God led Him into the wilderness to experience a season of temptations from the adversary. And so when, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, in response to the temptation, he, he responded by quoting the Word of God. In fact, in response to the temptation of turning the stones into bread so it could satisfy his hunger, Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And we should ask ourselves, well, he says it was written, but where was it written? Well, it was written in Deuteronomy chapter 8. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, I'm off, thank you. Uh, in verse number three, it says he humbled you and he led you, uh, he humbled you and led you uh, be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of our Lord. And, and then when Satan uh, follows up that temptation and he tries to quote Scripture back to Jesus to, to deceive him, well, well, Jesus fires back and he says, on the other hand, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Where was that written? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number 16 says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. And the final one, when Satan promised to give Jesus the kingdoms of the world, if he would just bow down and worship him, Jesus responded by saying, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus here was citing, and he was paraphrasing, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. There it says, You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you. Jesus' dependence upon the scripture and rebuke to the adversary was like a bookend to Moses' declaration that the word of God is your life. Jesus even insisted that the word of God is like food for our soul. Matthew 4, verse 4, as well as Luke chapter 4, verse number 4. Both of those verses record Jesus saying, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Man, I read that and you see that, that according to Moses, Scripture is your life. So Scripture was life to Moses and it was food to Jesus. Therefore, Scripture should be nothing less for me and for you. The Word of God is the very breath of God. Therefore, His Word is our authority. We must live our lives in full submission to the authority of the Word of God. Now, now, let me wrap this up. Let me kind of come to a conclusion here. And as I do, let me give you three truths real quick. Three truths. Three truths about sola scriptura, scripture alone. 
Number one, Scripture alone is our final authority. Unfortunately for many of us, uh, that word authority is a difficult word to embrace. We live in a time and a culture where individualism is preferred and pursued. But the Bible is all about authority. In fact, sola scriptura means that the Bible is not just our, our, our final authority, it is our chief authority. It is our ultimate authority. It is the supreme authority of our lives. Which in that statement, sola scriptura acknowledges that there are other authorities in life. There are other authorities that should be respected, other authorities that should be listened to, other authorities that should be followed, but Scripture is God's final authority. So the Word of God is the authority that rules and governs all other authorities. In other words, the Word of God is the authority that has a final say in a matter. All other authorities in our lives should be respected, followed, as long as, in so much as, they are submissive and obedient to the Word of God. Because this is our chief, final, supreme, ultimate authority in life. So not only is Scripture our final authority, the Word of God is our sufficient authority. Scripture provides us with all the truth that we need for salvation and to properly follow God with how we live our lives. The Bible is therefore sufficient for both faith and practice. I want to show you uh, the sufficiency of Scripture and how it has been beautifully articulated in the Westminster Confession of Faith from 1646. There it says that the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. So Scripture is our final authority. Scripture is our sufficient authority. And Scripture is the inerrant authority to rule our lives. See, because Scripture is the inspired Word of God, breathed out by God, it is His inerrant authority. Or another way to put it, because Scripture is God speaking, and since God is the God of truth, not of error, His word must be true and trustworthy in all that it addresses. Because it is true, it must be embraced. It must be followed. We must live our lives in full submission to the authoritative, true word of God. The God of truth has breathed out the word of truth. And the word of truth is nothing less than the flawless authority of for faith and practice in our lives. Oh, that we as His church would have a high view of the Word of God. That we would 
have a hunger and a desire to study the Word of God, to know the Word of God, and to rightly apply His Word to our lives. We live in a broken, messed up world. That is true. But the authority that should guide us and lead us and direct us is His Word. May we never apologize by being obedient to the Word of God. May we stop trying to find extra sources or new revelations from God when He has given to us all that we need to properly submit and surrender our lives unto Him and to faithfully pursue Him so that He might be glorified in all that we do and all that we say. O church, sola scriptura, scripture alone guides us in faith and in practice. Let's pray. Father, help us to love your word. Help us to do a much better job of studying your word. Create within us a a desire to memorize your word and to rightly apply your word to our hearts and to our lives. God, we thank you for the beautiful gift that you have given to us. The, The words that you have breathed out unto us. Help us to remember, as J.I. Packer says, that each time that we hear your word, study your word, sit in submission to your word, it's as though you're preaching directly to us. God the Father preaching, God the Son, through the power of God the Spirit. God, help us. Help us to turn to you for the final authority in all things. Help us to love you. and Help us to love one another. May you be glorified in all that you see in us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.